Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On tonight's program, a massive effort to provide new hope for a cure for Alzheimer's disease. I think there will be effective treatments developed within the next decade. I'm quite optimistic about that. We are seeing some early signs and some effective treatments right now, but they need to be established with very large studies. Plus, the essential role that endovascular surgical neuroradiology plays in stroke care. A big part of what we do is for the diagnosis. And then most more recently, this technology has now allowed us to do inv- you know, minimally invasive therapies. And we discuss dealing with the dangerous problem of improper disposal of unused medications. The more readily that a medication or a drug is available, the more opportunity they have to use it. All that and a new selection from our healing muse. And that's all coming up right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On tonight's show, we explore endovascular neuroradiology and how it plays an essential role in the treatment of strokes. Plus, how improper disposal of unused medications can wreak havoc on our community and the environment. But first, new hope for a cure for Alzheimer's and the establishment of the National Brain Health Registry. Well, an estimated 5.3 million Americans of all ages have Alzheimer's disease in 2015 and it now ranks as the sixth cause of death in the United States. Research into the causes and possible cures for this disease are crucial. And joining us from his office in San Francisco to discuss his role in this all-important research is Dr. Michael Weiner, a professor of radiology and biomedical imaging, medicine, psychiatry, and neurology at the University of California, San Francisco. Welcome, Dr. Weiner. Thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. So I understand that currently you are the principal investigator of the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative, which is the largest observational study in the world concerning Alzheimer's disease. Well, I mean, things really have changed in the area of neurodegenerative disease research since your days as a medical student here at Upstate Medical University. Tell us a little bit about this study or this project and also about your journey and what led you to this kind of research? Sure. Well, 50 years ago, I was just graduating and received my uh, medical degree at Upstate Medical Center in Syracuse, and it was there that I really developed a strong interest in doing scientific research uh, because I realized that a doctor who takes care of patients has an impact on those patients, but by doing research, one can have a greater impact on the population if one can help find a better way to diagnose or treat a disease. So I decided to go into research, and I had many different projects. And then about 35 years ago, I learned about something which became MRI. And I was fortunate to become one of the doctors who very early on started using MRI and experimenting with it, trying to figure out what you could do with MRI. And then about 25 years ago, I decided to focus on Alzheimer's disease to use MRI for the diagnosis. And uh, since that time, the field of Alzheimer's has become very important and very impactful because the population is getting older and millions of people have Alzheimer's and the rate of growth of this disease is huge. And currently, as everybody knows, there really is no treatment for Alzheimer's disease, which is the major cause of dementia. So, the, about, about 10 years ago, uh, it was clear that uh, treatments that might slow the course of Alzheimer's disease were being developed, but we needed better ways to diagnose the patient. And I conceived of this project called the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative, or ADNI, as a way of standardizing and optimizing various diagnostic tests, including MRIs and uh, PET scans and other kinds of tests, So we've enrolled over 1,000 subjects across the country, and they get all kinds of tests, and we follow people longitudinally. Uh, We study normal, healthy elders in their 70s and 80s. 
people with mild impairments and people with dementia due to Alzheimer's disease. So what exactly are you looking for using the MRI? And you're using the MRI in PET as well. What are you looking for? What are you finding? Is, the, is it an effort mostly for diagnosis, or is there something beyond that? The overall goal is to optimize what we call biomarkers, which would include MRI and PET, blood tests, and other kinds of tests, for use in clinical trials to determine the effectiveness of treatments for Alzheimer's disease. So when you do a clinical study with a new treatment to see if it helps people, you need to identify people who are at risk for the disease. You don't want to treat people who don't have Alzheimer's disease. You only want to treat people who really have the Alzheimer's process going on in their brain. And you can't detect that just by talking to somebody. You need to do a scan or some kind of a test to detect the presence of the Alzheimer's pathology in the brain. And what we're doing is trying out a number of different methods that measure the presence of Alzheimer's disease in the brain and determine if these methods predict who's going to decline, have problems with their memory, and ultimately go into dementia. Because it's those people who are at risk to decline who you want to treat to prevent their decline. Are you also doing, um, are you also using these same measures or same methods to do monitoring of treatment over time? Exactly. We use the methods when the people come into the study, and I should say that I'm a patient myself. I'm a volunteer in the study because we need normal, healthy people in the study as well as people with dementia and people with memory problems. We study people at what we call baseline. That is the first, the first time they come. And then every year people come back and we follow them as long as possible. I've myself been in the study for more than 10 years. So every year I go to the clinic and I have an MRI scan and a PET scan. I have all kinds of tests of my memory and how well I can think and so forth. And um, these tests are difficult. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder, wow, I'm really not uh, remembering as well as I did when I was younger. But that's also something that's just associated with the normal aging process. So. So some of your listeners who are in their 60s or 70s, they, they're noticing that their brains are not quite as sharp as they were when they were in their 20s and 30s, and that's not cause for concern. That's a normal aging process. Alzheimer's disease, though, accelerates that process and starts to cause real problems with day-to-day function. And we need to figure out how we identify those people at the earliest stage possible so they could be enrolled in a study if you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with neuroradiologist and Alzheimer researcher, Dr. Michael Weiner. We're talking about Alzheimer's disease. So I guess the question is, what are the kinds of things that you're seeing in terms of neuroimaging that says to you, this patient has Alzheimer's disease? The big impact is that it's been known for for it's been known for a century that Alzheimer's disease is caused by two proteins in the brain. One is called amyloid, and it forms as little plaques, little little uh, small areas. And the other is called tau, and it causes something called tangles. And it's the amyloid plaques and the tau tangles that destroy the nerve cells and cause memory problems and cognitive decline and dementia. Now, when a person goes to a doctor with a problem, the doctor can kind of test their memory and see how they're doing, but the doctor can't see into their brain and see this amyloid and tau. The doctor can make a kind of an educated uh, assessment and say, well, I think you've got Alzheimer's disease. But in the past, the only way to really make the diagnosis for certainty would be at autopsy. And, of course, then it's way too late. Now, with PET scans, we can detect the amyloid protein, and we can detect the tau protein. We can see if the person's memory problems are really due to Alzheimer's pathology, or they may be caused by other problems. They may be caused by little strokes. They may be caused by other diseases. Or it may not be a serious problem. Maybe the person is just not getting enough sleep, or they're depressed, and uh, it's a reversible reversible problem not due to Alzheimer's disease. So would the memory problems that you had mentioned to, earlier alluded to in terms of the normal process of aging, there are no 
amyloids and plaques and tangles um, in terms of the normal process of aging. There may be interruption or problems with your memory, but those findings are what makes this basically a disease entity. Exactly. Normal, as, as we get older, our brains slow down a little bit. It takes us, it takes us longer to, to remember things and to process things. That's a normal process. And forgetting little things about, well, where are, did I leave my keys or, gee, uh, which, uh, which level in the parking garage that I parked my car, this is all part of normal aging. When people start to have a progressive problem, in which you can see from one year to the next it's really getting worse, and you really start to get worried, and that's associated with the amyloid in the tau. Um, at this point, are th- those amyloids and the, t- and the tau that you mentioned, are those also present in some other forms of dementia, or is it pretty much limited to Alzheimer's? Well, Alzheimer's disease is associated with amyloid and tau. There are other problems which are associated with just tau alone, uh, you might have heard of this problem that's being picked up in football players uh, called chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or yeah. CTE. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a disease associated with tau uh, that's associated with traumatic brain injury and concussions. Uh, so there are, and there are other diseases, uh, such as something called frontotemporal dementia, which is caused by tau. And there are other proteins. There's a protein called alpha-synuclein, which is, uh, causes Parkinson's disease, for example. So there are a whole host of different proteins that cause different diseases in the brain, but by far the most common one is Alzheimer's associated with amyloid and tau. Is the hope that what, you've, what you begin to find now over time will actually then affect not only treatment but prevention? Yes. The uh, emphasis in our field is more and more going towards trying to do prevention. And in order to do prevention, you need to do several things. First of all, you need to identify who is at risk and who is not at risk. Because the, the treatments for prevention are probably going to be expensive, and you certainly don't want to treat everybody because there will probably be side effects associated with the treatments as well. So you want to identify people who are at risk, and that's where a better diagnosis comes in, and that's where the PET scanning of amyloids comes in. Um, the... Uh, but right now, most clinical trials are aimed at symptomatic subjects, subjects who have dementia or subjects who have mild cognitive impairment, sometimes called MCI, which is an early stage of dementia, you could say. Uh, and we are also starting some prevention trials. There's uh, at least one major prevention trial going on in the United States right now called A4, going on in about 100 different centers in the United States. And that's in its early stages. It'll take several years. What but are that's they, where we're going. What are they doing in those prevention trials? In that prevention trial, they're giving an antibody against amyloid. I so see. It's, a, it's a protein uh, that is attacks amyloid and pulls amyloid out of the brain. Now, there is a lot of interest in whether or not you could prevent Alzheimer's disease by, let's say, doing more exercise or by exercising your brain more, by playing computer games or by doing challenging things or by diet, by taking more fish oil or vitamins. And there is some uh, very, very limited evidence that doing these things uh, prevents Alzheimer's disease. But the evidence is really weak. Alzheimer's disease is a hereditary disorder. Uh, Not always hereditary, but it is very hereditary. If you have a parent or two parents or grandparents, with a history of Alzheimer's disease, you're more likely to have it. So we know that there are genes for Alzheimer's disease. We can measure those genes, and we can see who's at risk. There are some people, though, who don't seem to have a family history, and they don't seem to have the genes, and they get Alzheimer's as well. So it's, it's complicated. But the hope and it's is... a huge challenge. Oh, yeah, it's a ahead. huge challenge, I guess, in the little bit of time we have left. The hope is that through these kinds of studies, both in terms of monitoring treatments, ongoing treatments today, and also to being able to um, basically identify the people who would be at risk, that you can begin to target more closely what the cause is potentially and the cure could be. Exactly. Exactly. Do you and think, is, right. do you think that you'll find a cure in your lifetime or there I will be that, a cure? I think that there will be effective treatments 
developed in my lifetime. I think there will be effective treatments developed within the next decade. I'm quite optimistic about that. We are seeing some early signs of some effective treatments right now, but they need to be established with very large studies. And these, I should just say, these studies cost sometimes uh, $150 million to do these big studies. So it's very, very expensive. The pharmaceutical companies make huge investments try these things out, and sometimes they fail. We've we've had a lot of failed trials. You're involved with one other project I want you to mention before we have to close, and that's the Brain Health Registry. Tell us what it is and why is it important. The big problem, as I mentioned, is to identify people early on. And probably one of the best ways to identify somebody early is to track them longitudinally. That is, to have somebody come back year after year after year to take some tests and see if there's any change. And, of course, this could be very expensive if we ask everybody to come into a clinic and get evaluated every year. So uh, we thought that we could try to figure out a way to do this at a very low cost by using a website. And we set this thing up called the Brain Health Registry. Brain Health Registry. And anybody can go there. I hope your listeners will go to their computers or their mobile devices or their iPads or whatever and look up Brain Health Registry and sign on. It's very, it doesn't cost anything. It's very easy. It's simple. You sign on. You get a password. Your privacy is protected. We ask questions about your health and about your family history. And then there are some tests that are kind of like games. But they're tests of your memory and other functions of your brain. And that gives us some information about how well you're doing. And then in six months, you'll get an email from us saying, please come back to the Brain Health Registry. It's time for a little follow-up visit. And we only ask for about a half an hour of somebody's time a few times a year. We've got 30,000 people enrolled already, and we're really uh, ambitious. We want to enroll millions of people and track them longitudinally, that is, over time. And we think that we will see that some people are going to start to decline and those are the people who we'd like to bring into clinical trials because we think that if somebody, even if they're completely normal, if they have no complaints, if they're starting to show some decline or some change in their uh, uh, neuropsychological functioning, that they may be at the very earliest stage, and that's just when you want to intervene prevent them from getting worse and ultimately developing dementia. Well, it all sounds incredibly promising and hopeful, and I laud you for these efforts. I think um, especially as the boomers are aging and the population continues to live longer, we would like to do so in a kind of, you know, with our with our full cognition, <laughs> if possible. Exactly. exactly. This is something that we all, that is the whole population, needs to get together. Uh, the doctors can't do this on their own. We need people to volunteer join projects, get involved in research. It's very safe. Uh, Privacy is protected. And uh, it's a way of giving back a little bit. And especially if we have uh, family members or friends who have dementia or have uh, problems with memory, we can all see the problem and we need to get it solved. And it's very exciting to be working in this area. Very exciting to hear all about it. Thank you so much for your time and your efforts. So it's the Brain Health Registry. People can go online and find it. And I wish you all the best with this research. It's very exciting. Thank you for your Thanks. time. My guest Thanks. has been Thank you. my guest has been Dr. Michael Weiner. He's a professor in radiology and biomedical imaging, medicine, psychiatry, and neurology at the University of California, San Francisco. Next up, endovascular neuroradiology and its role in stroke care. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Well, today the trend in medicine is wherever possible to use minimally invasive techniques to treat problems that would have in the past required more invasive surgical interventions. And this is likewise true of the diseases of the central nervous system, the head, the neck, and the spine. 
Well, joining us to explain how these efforts are making a real difference in stroke care today is Dr. Hisham Masood, Assistant Professor of Neurology and Neurosurgery and Clinical Assistant Professor of Radiology at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Masood. Thanks for coming in. So with all this emphasis, more and more on minimally invasive techniques, tell us about your field of expertise. It's called endovascular surgical neuroradiology. What is that, and what does it do, basically? So that field goes by several different names depending on what discipline you approach it from. And so if you come from a radiology background, it may, you may hear it be called uh, interventional neuroradiology. Uh, neurosurgery uh, can call it uh, endovascular surgical neuroradiology. Um, and uh, if you come from a neurology background, which is what I come from, it's called uh, interventional neurology. And essentially what it is is um, catheter-based interventions to treat vascular problems in the spine and the brain. So when you say catheter-based, you're basically saying that you insert some kind of a long tube into a vessel in the body? Correct. And what we typically do is we do something called a transfemoral approach, which means that the blood vessel that we go into is a large blood vessel in the groin called the femoral artery. It derives its name from the femur bone that it sits right on top of. And we pass a very thin wire and a catheter. Catheter is just a plastic tube. It has a curve on the end of it that helps us select the arteries of interest. And we use that plastic tube to deliver contrast, which is a clear solution. And that can sort of illuminate the blood vessels using x-ray technology so we know and um, where we're going and diagnosing illnesses. So the bottom line is that what you're doing is you're putting these little tubes in through a large, a large uh, artery and then finding the, the, the problem area, so to speak, but you're doing it at the same time as taking pictures of it through some kind of imaging technology. Correct. And it's x-ray technology. And um, the contrast we use has iodine, and so it blocks the x-rays. And we're able to see the, uh, the contrast as it fills the arteries and then out through the veins. And so it allows us to get really nice pictures. It is, so is it done <clears throat> largely for diagnosis, or is it also utilized for treatment? Yeah, a big part of what we do is for the diagnosis. And then most more recently, this technology has now allowed us to do um, inva- you know, minimally invasive therapies. And... Um, so for, for the vascular piece, we can treat things like um, a connection between an artery and a vein that shouldn't be there. That may be called a fistula, could be called a, vena, a, a arteriovenous malformation. Um, these things sometimes can be found incidentally, or you may present with a bleed in the brain, and then the first, time, the first thing that we worry about when you have a bleed in the brain is, is there a problem with the pipes that are feeding the brain? And that's where the diagnosis comes in with an angiogram, which is basically mapping out the blood vessels of the brain, and then a treatment if we deem it appropriate. So do you, the treat, type of treatments that you will utilize using this catheter mm-hmm. would be some kind of a, a liquid? Um, tell us S- Several different things. So if it's a uh, connection between an artery and a vein, we can use uh, materials to block off that connection. And that uh, we call those embolics. And so that can be things like polyvinyl alcohol, so-called liquid embolic. It can be um, something like glue. We can use uh, little platinum coils to block off the connection. So you can actually insert things in there, not just liquids of delivering some kind of a treatment. Absolutely. We have different kinds of catheters that are compatible for different therapies. We also treat aneurysms uh, with this minimally invasive technology where we fill the aneurysm with coils, and that excludes it from the uh, arterial circulation. So that you don't re-rupture an aneurysm. Is that somewhat like is done in cardiology with stents? Correct. So the the technology is essentially the same stuff that is done in the heart, um, but further up. So uh, the same approach, which is the transfemoral approach, and we can put in stents as well. um, And we can do angioplasties where we inflate a balloon to widen the artery. Um, and then the most exciting stuff most recently, uh, which I, you know, I'm sure some of the listeners may have heard about, is what we can do for stroke therapy now. Yeah, I want to get to that in a minute. But tell me again, when you say it depends on how you come to it, what your area of training initially is like. So are there different subspecialties that we're talking about, or is it all the same and it's just whether you were initially trained in neurology and then chose to do this kind of subspecialty or originally in, in radiology. Right. So it depends. That. So 
the discipline is determined by what your residency was and what your fellowship was to then be able to do this subspecialty. And so uh, you can do it from a neurosurgery residency, you can do it from a radiology residency and then do neuroradiology fellowship training uh, before doing the, the, the interventional side. And from a neurologist standpoint, you can come from a neurology residency and then do a vascular neurology fellowship, which is typically uh, dealing with things like um, stroke. Uh, or you can do a neurocritical care fellowship, which means you do things uh, that have to do with intensive care uh, in the neurology space and then going on to the interventional side. So these are fairly, basically this, these opportunities have evolved fairly recently as, as sub, <clears throat> basically subspecialties from any of these earlier disciplines that you mentioned. Yeah, so the technology of being able to, to map out the blood vessels, this, you know, the diagnostic part of it, has been around for some time. It was actually pioneered by a neurologist who worked with a neurosurgeon, um, and they kind of came together and, and did that, and they used to do a direct stick in the carotid artery in the neck, and then a Swedish uh, physician came about and uh, found a, a safer way to do that through uh, an artery in the groin. Um, now, historically, uh, it's been mostly radiologists that have been doing this, and then as the field has evolved, neurosurgeons and neurologists are um, also able to, to perform these procedures. And as you mentioned, there's a wide variety of things that you can treat that otherwise might have required surgery, open procedures. Correct. And Correct. obviously with all the potential problems that occur Correct. with that kind of open procedure. And there's, there's uh, good data also to suggest that the, the minimally invasive approach improves outcomes as well. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with interventional neuroradiologist Dr. Hisham Masood, or whatever the term is we'll get to. And we're talking about minimally invasive treatments for the head and neck, and specifically I want to get to stroke. So as we started talking initially, I said that a lot of these techniques are very useful in the field of stroke, and you've been alluding to the fact that you've been particularly interested in stroke. Tell us about how the techniques that you've outlined work for stroke and why you would use them and when. Strokes can present uh, as a result of uh, several different things, and um, the, this therapy is most useful in uh, strokes that are um, as a result of large clots. And so these large clots uh, can shoot up into the arterial system and block off a major artery and cause a large, large stroke. And there is a medication that we've used uh, called TPA that's pretty good in sort of breaking down these clots, but they don't work all that well. And so uh, having a therapy now where you can retrieve these clots and, um, you know, restore blood flow to uh, the territory that was at danger for dying uh, is very exciting. And that comes through the interventional space. So bottom line is that in that now you are able, through these techniques, to basically go in. At one time, they were just giving clot buster drugs. Mm -hmm. And those, you said, mostly can work, but there's a timing issue and they don't always work as effectively. Mm -hmm. Now you can literally go in with this technology and use that catheter to deliver some kind of a, a pincer, some way to retrieve the stroke? Correct. We can do a couple of different things and it sort of evolved uh, with uh, a pivotal trial that one of my, my teachers was the pr a principal investigator for, Dr. Anthony J. Furlan. It's called the PROACT-2 trial where they took a tiny little plastic tube and went up to where the clot was and they d delivered a, a medication that had a pretty good efficacy in breaking down the clot. And at, that was the, the, the beginning. And then they came up with a, another device that looked like a corkscrew. It's called the Mercy Retrieval Device. And they would deploy that inside the clot and then pull that out. And that was a little bit better. Um, and then they came out with um, a little bit of a wider bore plastic tube that you would essentially hook up to something like a vacuum cleaner. It would suck out the clot. Oh, wow. and that was pretty good. Um, and then the, the most exciting thing that's come out recently is these stents. And they're called stent retrievers because it's a stent that you deploy, but then you can actually pull out. And it was technology that was originally developed for aneurysm treatment. Sometimes if you have an aneurysm that has a wide neck, you'll put some, some coils in there and the coils could come out. So you drop a stent or a scaffolding to keep those coils in place. But one, of, one physician, I believe it was in Spain, um, tried it out in a stroke case and found that they were able to achieve a pretty good recanalization. And so that sparked some trials. And recanalization for our listeners? That means reopening of a blood vessel that was stopped off by a clot. Um, and so we've had a series of trials that have had overwhelming uh, positive results 
in the ability to uh, to uh, you know revascularize blood vessels that have been occluded. Now, many times we hear that stroke or brain is time is is the kind of jargon Correct. that we hear or the motto that we hear. So, <clears throat> how important is timing? in the use of this type of technology? And also, do you use it initially to do a diagnosis before you then go in, or is it all done at the same time? Tell us about the procedure. So we have a very good protocol when it comes to patients who are coming in with symptoms that are concerning for a large vessel stroke, is what we, we how call do those, it. How do, you, how do you distinguish the two? So um, if you present with um, weakness on one side of your body, uh, language difficulty, um, Typically, those things are called uh, large vessel occlusions because it's a very dramatic presentation. And, and change means, in what pr your prior behavior. Correct. And uh, it, 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 it basically means that there is a large territory of the brain that is now not functioning. And so the concern is that that may represent a large clot. And when that happens, the first thing that we do is we want to make sure that it is not a bleed, because, which can also present in the same way. So you come in, you get a CAT scan, which is a non-invasive imaging modality, and that can demonstrate whether or not there is a bleed. And sometimes it can actually show us the clot. Based on the clinical scenario, we may decide to inject some contrast in the arm, which will then illuminate the blood vessels and show us if there is a blood vessel that's stopped off. And then you can go to the angio suite, which is where we would do the interventional procedure. So patients have to be a candidate for this procedure, but it's a very rapid, rapid um, a triage. So it's done very quickly and What's been the success in your experience? So I have been fortunate to see some pretty dramatic things uh, in, in the last institution that I was at. The, the one that comes to mind is a 30-year-old gentleman who came in with a very, very large stroke. He was a firefighter in Boston, and um, he came in within an hour, and we were able to achieve uh, recanalization or opening that blood vessel within 30 minutes, and uh, he was home in two days. With no... With no residual deficit. So, That's you know, pretty dramatic. We, you know, I had another woman who uh, we had her home uh, for Mother's Day, you know, two days prior to, and uh, with, again, no residual deficit. So when it works, it is, it's almost like a Lazarus effect, and yeah. it's very, very rewarding to be, be able to, to I, offer that to patients. It sounds amazing. So basically, um, you, you just keep alluding, you're new to this community, you're new to this, basically, to Upstate Medical yes. University. Tell us a little bit about where you came from and how you... What moved you to this field? We only have a little bit of time left. Sure. So, you know, I started my residency in Cleveland in neurology. I, I was fortunate enough to work with um, great physicians uh, like Anthony J. Furlan, who sort of instilled an interest in me in stroke therapy. Uh, and, um, you know, just kind of taking care of stroke patients, I decided that I wanted to offer, be able to offer more and give a continuity of care and see patients to give them TPA, take out the clot, see them in clinic afterwards. Uh, and that sort of driv drove me to take a fellowship, a combined fellowship at Boston Medical Center, where I trained with uh, great physicians, um, Dr. Uh, Tan Nguyen, who comes from a neurology background, and Dr. Alexander Norbash, who comes from a radiology background. Wow. And it was a three-year combined uh, program. And it was great to be able to work with a multidisciplinary team, uh, which, which Upstate also has now, which is pretty exciting. Um, in my final year of fellowship, I was also an attending on the stroke service, and then I was recruited to come here. Well, we're so glad to have you. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so very much you very for much. coming in. My guest has been Dr. Hisham Masood, Assistant Professor of Neurology and Neurosurgery and Clinical Assistant Professor of Radiology at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. up next, how improper disposal of unused medications is wreaking havoc on our community and environment. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air, Linda Cohen along with you. Medicines play an important role in treating many conditions and diseases that we face, but when they're no longer needed, it's important to dispose of them properly to prevent harm from either accidental exposure or intentional misuse. 
Plus, many communities are facing opioid and heroin epidemics, and safe drug disposal is one viable component of a multi-pronged approach to reducing drug abuse. We'll hear with more on all of this is Gail Bannock from Upstate New York Poison Center at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Gail. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Thank you, Linda. So despite so proper disposal of medications that are no longer needed are essential. Tell us why that is and how this whole issue of the opium, mm-hmm. opioid and heroin epidemic somehow is connected to this. Yeah. Well, the reality is that if you the more readily that a medication or a drug is available, the more accessibility people have to it, the more opportunity they have to use it. So if you follow that logic, Obviously, it's it's important for us to get rid of our outdated, expired medications that we're no longer using and get them out of our medic- medicine cabinet so no one has access to them. So, But you said there is a linkage in some way. So is the idea that because they're in our medicine chests, perhaps a teenager might get a hold of them well, and misuse yeah. them? Yeah, it could be a teenager. It could be anyone. I mean, the reality is looking at uh, reports from real estate companies now, they're telling us that people are going in during tours of homes, they're going into medicine cabinets to take medicine or they're stealing it out of a co-worker's purse. So it isn't just about, you know, teenagers, but it is, certainly does include teenagers. And we're trying to look at the big picture and trying to come up with some strategies that will help prevent as many of those um, opportunities as possible. So getting to that, what exactly should people do? Let's say you have several drugs in your medicine chest that you no longer use. What what's the best strategy for dealing with them? Well, glad that you asked. Right now we have a new program out in Onondaga County that we're very proud of that is called a Sharps um, Needles and Drug Disposal Program. And the program is uh, involves many program partners, including the Onondaga County Health Department and the DA's office, as well as, of course, the Poison Control Center, the Prevention Network, and uh, uh, REACH CNY in addition to Covanta and Okra. And we're very pleased that that Covanta has agreed to burn um, all of the medications and the drugs that we get from this program, this drug collection. So the the strategy is that we now have collection boxes at nine local uh, PD uh, police departments in Onondaga County. And during regular business hours, people can go to the the uh, their local law enforcement agency and drop off their unwanted expired medication. Wow, that's really quite significant. Mm-hmm. Is that can that is that current? It's it's happening now. It's and, happening now. And is it going to be ongoing? Something that will go on mm-hmm. for months and months? It is going to be ongoing, Linda. That's the great news about this. Uh, w- the reason we've done this is because of the fact that, as you, as most people know, the DEA started a uh, drug disposal event, and they ha- hold it every uh, six months, so by um, semi-annually, and. That's great news because they've collected something like 5 million pounds of medications in the past four years uh, prior to starting it up again this year. And so we're thrilled with that program. But but when you look at it now, they're, um, for the most part, people do not have another place to dispose of those meds the other five months of the year. So now this program will give them an opportunity to go to their local police department during regular business hours and get rid of those medications, in addition to sharps and needles. Yeah, I want to get back, I want to talk a little bit more about that as well. But if you, if in, in the event that you wouldn't be able to actually, or you don't live near to, or you don't have the ability to get to one of these drop-off places, mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about the kinds of things that people can do themselves mm-hmm. in terms of what's a safe way to dispose of some of these medications. Mm-hmm. What should they be doing? Uh, the first thing they shouldn't be doing is flushing it down the toilet because obviously, you know, as it travels through our, um, the waste that it can pollute our environment, and more importantly, it can harm you know animals in our environment. That the um, drugs that leach out into the soil and into our uh, waterways, uh, and the FDA has a uh, a piece on their website about drug proper dr- drug disposal that I would encourage people to go look at. Uh, that recommends that you take the medication and um, put it in coffee grounds or kitty litter and wet the substance, put it in a container, and put it out with your regular garbage. That certainly is an option, uh, but as I said, 
we're hoping to change people's way of thinking so that we can get them to realize that it's just as easy to go to a their local PD on their way to the store to shop or to a pharmacy to pick up new meds and to hopefully drop off those meds so that they can be taken by uh, the DEA to Covanta and Okra for that burn. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with Poison Center's Gail Bannock, and we're talking about the importance of proper disposal of no longer needed medications. So there are some medications I read some in some of my research that can be flushed if they're very highly toxic and mm-hmm. there's really a fear that if anyone were to get mm-hmm. a hold of them, they could be perhaps even lethal. and But that information should be found, as you said, on the FDA website. Right. So if you have any question at all in our listening audience to what exactly to do if you can't get to a police department and drop those off. By the way, we will also have a link to our website on what those nine police stations are Great. that you can bring it to. Um, you can go on the FDA website and determine exactly what to do with those medications. Let me get to the sharps and needles. When we say sharps, what do we mean? We're talking about any products that are used for home care in terms of the management of um, any dis- chronic illness or disease that you may have. So you, typically it comes to mind uh, diabetes. Uh, and so lancets, sharps, needles. and the Auto-injectors. People- right. Any kind of syringe, mm-hmm. needles, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. and Or even infusion sets, if you're doing some kind of infusion. I'm not familiar with those, Linda, to be very honest okay. with you. But you certainly can call um, the Poison Control Center. We can get you that answer if you're interested. And um, the great news about this collection program is that even though the DEA drug collection days have been very successful, and we're thrilled that they, Senator Schumer and, and all the other senators pushed so hard to make this happen again. Um, the reality is the other five months of the year, people don't know what to do with these products. And the as far as drugs are concerned, as far as the needles, uh, I've actually had people telling me that they drive around, have driven around with needles in their car, and they don't know what to use, do with used needles. Uh, hospitals do collect them, but they don't advertise for the most part that they do collect them. Um, And so oftentimes people are confused. This project will at least allow people to go to their local PDs, as we said, um, and hopefully this program will be expanded at the end of the year to all PDs in Onondaga County, keeping our fingers crossed. And then they can dispose of those unwanted um, lancets, sharps, needles, the proper way because drug disposal days do not collect sharps and needles. What's the main danger with sharps? In other words, what types of diseases can be spread? What Besides getting just a puncture wound, sure. what are the kinds of things that are potentially, you know, gotten from yeah. using? Well, from hepatitis the- C, hepatitis B, um, HIV even from used needles. But that puncture wound isn't to be ignored either because oftentimes people reuse needles because senior citizens have told me that they're expensive, that they have to pay something for them. And so they reuse their needles. And unfortunately, they can cause, you know, um, infection mm-hmm. in that... Um, at the site. At the site because the needle is less sharp every single time you use it. So great idea to have an opportunity to get rid of those and dispose of those needles properly. And maybe try to make them more affordable for our senior citizens as well. Yeah. Well, this is really very, very exciting and very helpful for all these people um, uh, who are obviously, most of us have something mm-hmm. of that nature in our homes. And and the hope then would be that we would basically get in control, both of the sharps, the, the needles, mm-hmm. and all of those potential drug problems. And is it your hope then that besides the fact that it will be, I mean, to my mind, it's going to be at police departments, but the most simple way to do this would be if pharmacies would, mm-hmm. would accept these things back. Mm-hmm. Well, mean, is there any movement toward mm-hmm. thinking about that? If people are always going to get you know new prescriptions, it would be the likely plot, in my mind, the likely place. You're is absolutely any- right, Linda. We've been talking about this for years, and we work directly with Senator Schumer's office, and the fabulous news is that the DEA has amended its regulations, and so now pharmacies on the books, are allowed to take back medications. But, of course, this is going to be a process because as you talk to pharmacies, they say, 
great, but who's paying for it? Who's expecting accepting the responsibility? What about the liabilities to our you know involved with our um, our personnel? So there are a lot of questions to be answered before that process is in place. But pharm- some pharmacies are collecting over the counter medications and some prescription medications. So you can check with your pharmacy on that. So we're moving in the right direction. I believe so. Lastly, once again, the resources people should go to the FDA website. Yes. They can link to our website for the information about locally where they can drop them off. Is there any other resource you'd like to offer? Certainly the Upstate New York Poison Control Center. If you go to upstatepoison.org, um, we certainly have information on all types of, of pieces. And make sure you check out our newsletter because there are tons of articles in there as well. Thank you so much for coming in. My guest has been Gal Bannock from Upstate's New York Poison Center uh, with Upstate Medical University. Um, So glad you came in, Gail. My pleasure. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. We spend a good part of our time in medical education thinking about the ethical principle autonomy, the right to decide. Every patient has this right. But what happens when the patient cannot speak? Carol Scott Connor is a professor of surgery at the University of Iowa's Carver College of Medicine. She is also the author of a book of short stories. She gave us a mystery to solve in her short story called The Dancer. I will read you an excerpt and hope you will look up the rest of the story on our website to find out what happened. The Dancer. He won't agree to the tracheostomy. Why not, Dr. Slattery asked. He wants to die. Go back in there after rounds and reason with him. He's on the schedule for 10 a.m. tomorrow. Yes, ma'am, the intern said. Morris shrugged, talked to the chief resident. I have talked to him. He won't budge. He knows what he wants. He was a ballet dancer before this, and now he'll never walk again. I don't care if he was a giraffe before this. He still needs a tracheostomy. He's on the schedule for tomorrow. Your job is to talk him into it. And how do you know what he wants anyhow? He can't talk. He can't write. He can't move a finger. He blinks his eyes. I count the blinks. We talk. She stood up and went into the dancer's cubicle. Dr. Slattery wanted me to come back and talk with you again. A tracheostomy will help you breathe more easily. You'll even be able to talk once you get used to it. The dancer wore a spinal immobilization device secured to his skull with four sharp spikes anchored to his chest. He could only look straight ahead, either at the ceiling or when his pneumatic bed cycled every two hours, 20 degrees to one side or the other. Mora had to stand on a stool and bend way over to get him in her line of sight. She was in danger of falling on top of him. The dancer started to blink. Mora poised her pen over her clipboard. She counted four blinks, D, nine blinks, I, five blinks, E, D, I, E, die. He stopped. Die, she asked, one blink. Yes. He looked off into the far distance, not at her. The dancer's elderly mother sat in a patch of sunlight by the window, watching intently. He wants to die, the mother said. Why does he want to die? He told me a year ago if he ever gets to where he can't do what he loves to do, he doesn't want to live. We were talking about me, actually. I was filling out all those papers, a living will or whatever you call it, before I had that operation, just in case. We talked about it for an hour. He was quite clear on it. Did he sign a living will? No, but we sure talked. Mora kept her eyes locked on the dancers just as she had been trained. Slattery had taught her that, actually, when she was a third-year student. The dancer blinked once. Yes? Do you mean yes? Mora asked. The dancer blinked. Once. Twice. Each blink was an exaggerated, deliberate blink. More like a two-eyed wink than a normal blink. Do you mean no? Two blinks. No. Can we do anything to make you more comfortable? No. D. I. E. Mora hesitated. Her back muscles started to go into spasms. We'll talk more later. She stepped down from the stool. The next day, rounds were held in the large conference room to accommodate the whole team and a medical ethicist. 
The ethicist said, let's go talk to him. Are you sure this is what he wants? In the dancer's room, Mora took up her familiar position on the stool, but this time the ethicist asked the questions and Mora relayed the answers. Do you understand what has happened to you? One blink of the eyes, yes. Do you understand that you will not recover the use of your arms and legs? Yes. Your medical team wants to do a tracheostomy to make you more comfortable and allow you in time to come off the ventilator. Do you want them to do this? D-I-E. Die? Do you want to die? No. The ethicist spread his hands in a backing off gesture. Let's see if we can find a better way to communicate, he said. We will talk again, I promise you. Mora shakily climbed down from the stool. The ethicist stalked down the hallway, rubbing the hair on the back of his head while the team followed. When the door was closed behind them, the ethicist said slowly, Good Lord, people, you mean well. Your hearts are in the right place, but does anyone here think you know what is in his mind? That, what we did in there, was not communication. The only thing we learned is that he knows how to spell the word die. We can do better than that. You cannot possibly resolve this ethically until you enable that man to speak his mind, until you empower him to tell you what is in his heart. Call speech pathology. They can set him up with any number of assistive technologies. Then your conversation won't be so one-sided. I bet they can get him talking with an artificial larynx, even with that endotracheal tube. Call me back when he can talk with you. Until then, back off. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we explore the state of child abuse and what can be done. Plus, the health problems faced by low-wage workers. And should mental illness be seen as the root cause of gun violence? If you'd like to listen again to tonight's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings-on at Upstate, you can find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, or check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks so much for listening.